Okay, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. We're finishing up the model prayer. We will probably finish this today quite easily and start moving into the next part of the chapter. Uh, but we, we started studying these verses 12, uh, then 14 and 15 uh, last time. And uh, so let's read them, and then I will review a little bit. They say, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then verses 14 and 15, which say, if, for if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive you, uh, you will not forgive your transgressions. Uh, we... Saw, we said last time that a persistent pattern of refusing to forgive others indicates a lack of regeneration in, of one's heart, but true Christians can also fall into a sin of being unforgiving. So we need to know why it is so important that we forgive others. Now, there are several reasons why we are to forgive one another. We said, first, it's the character of righteousness. Uh, second, it follows the example of Christ. Ephesians 4.32 tells us that we're to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Third, it expresses the highest virtue of man. Uh, fourth, it frees the conscience from guilt. Fifth, it delivers us from chastening. And then sixth and final and more important than the other five, we said... We're to forgive one another because if we don't, we don't get forgiven either. That's what these verses say. Uh, Jesus is dealing, says that God deals with us as we deal with others. He measures us by the yardstick we use on others. If we're unwilling to forgive and restore a relationship with others, he will not grant parental forgiveness to us and restore the fullness of our relationship with him. Uh, we are not to come asking for forgiveness that we're unwilling to give ourselves. That's where we stopped. But let's continue with this idea. Uh, Jesus taught on this truth in Matthew 18. So let's look there for a couple of minutes. After Jesus taught about dealing with someone who had sinned against you and then going through the process of church discipline and forgiving those who repent, Peter shows up. He goes to Jesus. In verse 21, he says, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Now, the rabbis taught that you only had to forgive three times. Uh, so Peter thought he's being magnanimous. Uh, but verse 22, Jesus says to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. The idea is not that there's a limit of 490 times. Uh, rather, it's an indefinite, infinite amount. Why? Because we are to forgive just as God in Christ has also forgiven us. So how much and how often has he forgiven us? Well, an infinite amount, hasn't he? Uh, for he's forgiven us all for all of eternity. That's what our Lord is saying. And then Jesus illustrates what he means, starting in verse 23. He says, For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king 
who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Now remember, this is a parable. Uh, Jesus is using an unbelievable amount of money to illustrate his point about forgiveness because there is no way a king would ever allow a real slave to be this indebted to him. Okay, now if, if these were silver talents in this parable, the value would be about $165 million. If, it was, were, if they were gold talents, the value is about $14 billion. Uh, but whether this is a talent of silver or a talent of gold may make a big difference in the total value to us, but it doesn't change anything for the illustration. It's an amount that no slave could ever repay. So verse 25 says, But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the king's going to sell this man and his family off as slaves to get whatever he can out of the deal. Uh, but then verse 26. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him saying, Have patience with me and I will repay you everything. Now, does anyone here actually believe that this guy could repay that much debt? Uh, of course not. There isn't a single one of us who has the ability to repay that kind of debt. Uh, this is just a ridiculous and stupid request from the guy. And if you're like most kings in this situation, you would either be incredulous or infuriated uh, at the guy for even suggesting such a thing. Uh, but verse 27 says, And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. Amazing. Guess who this king represents? God. Guess who the servant is? All of us. Yes. Did we owe a debt we couldn't pay? Yeah, you bet we did. And God forgave us. Why? Because he is compassionate. But watch what happens next. Verse 28, but that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii and he seized him and began to choke him saying, pay back what you owe. So this guy who's just been forgiven an incompre incomprehensible amount of money goes out, grabs one of his slave buddies who owes him the equivalent of three months work and starts demanding his money. Verse 29, so his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. Now that's an amount he could have repaid. It's doable. But what happened? Verse 30. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he could pay back what was owed. There's no way that he could repay the debt while he was in prison because he couldn't work there. And that just shows us the evil of the first slave's heart. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. The injustice of what happened really got under the skin of the other slaves. So they go back and report to the king uh, what this guy's done. Verse 32, then summoning him, 
His Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have also, also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. And then note this closing comment by Jesus. My heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. That's a picture of someone who wants to take all the forgiveness that God can give, but isn't willing to give it to someone else. Listen, one of the reasons we need to acknowledge our sin as it exists and confess it by name on a constant basis is that we will be constantly reminded of what sinners we are. Um, how constant his forgiveness is. And thus, in the, midst, <coughs> in the midst of that reminder, we'll be more prone to forgive others. But if we fail to acknowledge our own sins as we cover it up and don't deal with it, we not only will lose our intimacy with God and our joy and our use, the fullness of our usefulness to him, but we will find ourselves becoming unforgiving to others because we're not being honest about what God is forgiving in our own lives. Every believer must seek to manifest the forgiving spirit of Joseph who told his brothers who sold him into slavery. What did he, what did he say? You remember? Yeah, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And Stephen who prays for the men who are in the act of stoning him to death. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. As hard as it may be at times to express and truly grant such forgiveness, we must do it. The English theologian of the early 17th century, George Herbert, expressed it very well. He said, quote, He who cannot forgive breaks the bridge over which he himself must pass. Quote. Let me say that again. He who cannot forgive breaks the bridge over which he himself must pass. Uh, so what have we learned? First, that we have a problem. It's sin. God has a provision. It's forgiveness. We're to make a plea to God, which is confession. And there's a prerequisite, forgiving others. An unforgiving Christian is a contradiction. A proud, selfish creature with a poor memory who has forgotten that his sins have been washed away. So learn to confess. But before you confess, learn to forgive. There's one more point here to learn from this model prayer. It's found in verse 13. And it's God's protection. It says, And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is God's protection. And in this, we move from our physical need to our spiritual need, to what you might call our moral need. God takes care of our daily bread. That's physical sustenance. God takes care of the sin in our lives by forgiveness. And God takes care of the moral standard of our lives by guiding us away from sin. Verse 12 deals with past sins. Verse 13 deals with future sins. Let me just add here that if you're a true Christian, you are just as concerned about your future sins being avoided as you are your past sins being forgiven. 
Uh, everyone is really happy that the past is forgiven. But if we're truly followers of Christ, I believe we're just as anxious that we're delivered from the future ones. Why? Because to be a believer is to have a changed attitude about sin. Uh, on the one hand, we say, thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness from the past, but please, Lord, deliver me from the sins of the future. Uh, the sinner whose evil past has been forgiven longs to be delivered from the tyranny of sin in the future. They know what sin does in the past. They don't want to get involved with it again in the future. God has been gracious to forgive the past. A true Christian is not anxious to tread on his grace in the future. And so what and so that is what Jesus is saying here in verse 13. We not only need forgiveness, but we also need protection, preservation, deliverance. Yes, we need to be forgiven when we sin. But we also need to be delivered so that we don't continue to sin. Uh, the true Christian doesn't seek a license to sin. Uh, he doesn't find in grace a way to trample on God, a way to abuse his love, a way to force God to constantly forgive. Rather, he seeks sanctification. Now, some people have been confused by this petition. It's clear that it's asking God for protection from sinning in the future. But as you look at this verse, there are several questions that come to mind. First, he says, do not lead us into temptation. Now, does that mean that we have to ask God to do that? Does, does God lead us to temptation if we don't ask him? Uh, can a holy, righteous, pure, undefiled, blameless, unblemished, virtuous God possibly lead anyone to temptation? And then to ask him to deliver us from evil, does that mean that if we don't ask him to do that, that he's going to put us into evil? That's the dilemma. So there are people who come along and they try to solve the problem by saying, well, the word temptation here means trial. But the problem with that is that James 1-2 says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So if it's a good thing for us to be spiritually tested by trials, why would we ask the Lord not to lead us into them? And if you take it as a temptation, then you've got a problem because they're also just a little bit later in James. He tells us in James 1.13, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. So how in the world can we say, Lord, do not lead us into temptation when the Bible says that he's never going to do that anyway? So you see a little bit of the problem there? Uh, no matter how you deal with the word here, it seems to leave us with a problem. So let's see if we can work our way through this. And I think when we're done, you'll see the point. I think the early church father John Chrysostom uh, had the correct insight on this petition. He said, quote, this particular petition is the most natural appeal of human weakness as it faces danger, end quote. 
In other words, it's not so cognitive and rational as it is emotional. Uh, it's the cry of the heart that despises and hates the potential of sin. Uh, it's the expression of the redeemed soul that so wishes to avoid the danger and trouble that sin creates that it wants to escape all the prospects of falling into sin, choosing to avoid rather than having to defeat temptation. I realize that Christian character is strengthened by trials. I realize that I grow in my trials. I realize that trials have a perfecting work. I also realize that God doesn't tempt me. God never tempts anyone at any time to do anything wrong. Uh, that would be to defy his own nature. You say, well, then we what we have here then is a paradox. That's right, but it's not a an unknown paradox elsewhere in Scripture. For example, in Matthew 5.12, Jesus said that we're to rejoice when we're persecuted. But in Matthew 10.23, he said to flee persecution. Uh, that's a paradox. Uh, what are we to do? Stand there and rejoice or run? <laughs> yeah, I think the answer is that there's a sense in which we run from persecution, but when it catches us, we can know joy in the midst of it. Uh, there's a sense in which we resist a trial. Uh, no one likes a trial. We run from trials. Uh, there's a dread and fear in our heart about going through certain trials. But we know that even in the midst of those trials, there's a working of strength and endurance. We build spiritual muscle. We're better and stronger because of those trials. It's not unlike Jesus who prayed, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. In his humanness, he didn't want to go through that. And yet it was through that trial that he redeemed all of his children. And so there is something in the human heart that says, Lord, if you can spare me the trial, do it. But if I have to go through the trial, then deliver me from the potential, uh, evil potential that is included therein. It's a, it's a prayer based on a distrust of one's self. Uh, it's the humility of self-distrust that grows out of my recognition that I'm a sinner and I have failed so many times before and I'm so battered and bruised by this fallen world that continues to pound on me that I ask God to deliver me from these things. You see... Don't trust yourself. So this prayer is an appeal to God to provide what we ourselves do not have. We're to ask him to place a watch over our eyes and ears, our mouth, our feet and our hands, so that whatever we see, hear or say, and whatever we place we go, whatever anything we do, he will protect us from sin. Uh, we ought to have a strong and healthy distrust of ourselves in terms of our ability to resist sin. So that when we get into a trying situation, we need to rush into the presence of God and say, Lord, I'm being overwhelmed by this thing unless you come to my aid. And so this is a prayer based upon distrust, self-distrust. Uh, the kingdom child realizes he lives in a fallen world 
And this fallen world pounds on him with temptations of great strength, which he in his humanness can never resist. And so the implication of this part of the prayer seems to be, Lord, don't ever lead me into a trial that will present such a temptation to me that I won't be able to resist it. Uh, it's laying claim to the promise of 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Here's what John MacArthur has to say about this particular petition. I thought this was excellent. He says, this petition is a safeguard against presumption and a false sense of security and self-sufficiency. We know that we will never have arrived spiritually and that we will never be free from the danger of sin until we are with the Lord. With Martin Luther, we say we cannot help being exposed to the assaults, but we pray that we may not, we may not fall and perish under them. As our dear Lord prayed for us in his great intercessory prayer, we want at all cost to be kept from the evil one. So that's what it, the idea behind that. So let's look at the phrase itself. He says, and lead us not into temptation. Now, we've already said God never tempts anyone. Uh, that's what scripture teaches. But God may allow Satan to bring certain trials into our lives as he did with Job. But Satan does the tempting, not God. God may allow a sinning believer in the church to be turned over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. But it is Satan that inflicts it, not God. God may discipline a sinning believer, as it states in 1 Timothy 1.20, by letting them be handed over to Satan so they'll be taught not to blaspheme. So there are times when God allows us certain trials. There are times when God allows Satan to have his way in our lives because we've been disobedient and unfaithful. There are times, like in Job's case, when God allows Satan to do some things to prove how righteous we actually are. But God is not the tempter. Evil never touches God. In fact, it's quite the contrary. Uh, flip over to James 1 for a moment. We already said this, but I want you to see something important here. James 1, I read verse 13 before. Let's look at it again. It says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But I want you to notice the next verse, verse 14. <clears throat> but each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. So it's not God who tempts us, but it's our own fallen flesh, which lusts after things. And you could add in parentheses by Satan because he and his demons are busy offering those external enticements to sin in order to draw us into them. Men sin because they're tempted, and they're tempted internally by their lust and externally by the enticement of Satan. Verse 15, Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. But watch this, verse 16, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In other words, in contrast to lust and temptation and sin, know that every perfect gift that God gives 
Every gift that God ever gives is a good and perfect gift. And that will never vary. God will never turn from that. So understand that when evil comes, it's not from God. It's important to understand this theological truth. People hag haggle about this all the time. God allows evil. That's within the purview of his own sovereign choice. And we'll have to wait for eternity to find out why. And I'm not certain that we will ever know the full answer even then. But while God allows evil, he does not do evil or tempt to do evil. Everything that proceeds from God is a good and perfect thing. You have to keep that tension in your mind. God allows certain things, but they are not the expression of his heart, his mind, his will, or his character. In fact, if you want to know what God thinks about temptation, what he feels about it, simply listen to Jesus in Matthew 26, 41. He told his disciples, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. In other words, he wanted them to avoid it. We might have good intentions, but our flesh is weak, so we continually pray to avoid it. And how does Satan tempt us? <clears throat> Anybody remember what 1 John 2.16 says? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And it says that these are not from the Father, but from the world. So these things do not proceed from God, but from the world, the flesh, and the devil. He does not tempt us to do evil, but rather God's desire is that we watch and pray and not enter into temptation. Now, please understand that whenever a trial comes along, there's always the possibility that that trial can be turned into a temptation. Uh, Joseph said in Genesis 50, verse 20, uh, Regarding his brother selling him in Egypt, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God brings along the struggles and trials of life to test us, to strengthen us, to exercise our spiritual muscle, to grow us to maturity. But in the midst of that, if we don't perceive it through the eyes of God and stay committed to him and stand in his strength, Satan will turn it into a temptation and entice us in our lust and draw us into sin. So the prayer, so when the prayer says, do not lead us into temptation, I believe that the implication is, Lord, don't ever lead us into a trial which will present us with such a temptation that we will not be able to resist it. Don't ever lead us into something we can't handle. Don't give us a trial that's going to become an irresistible temptation, but rather deliver us from any trial that would bring evil upon us as a natural consequence. Don't put us into something we can't handle. Now, here's an interesting thought. This means that God has to work out your whole life because there's certain things you need to grow. But if they come to you at the wrong time in your life, while you're too young in the faith, you wouldn't handle them. And instead of growing, you'd fall to them. Uh, for example, there are certain temptations that come to me now that I never could have dealt with when I was young in the faith. Uh, never. But as I've been strengthened, I now am able to handle and deal 
with them more than I was then. So the Lord has to order our whole life so that at no point in our life will we ever be tempted in a situation where we do not have the strength to resist. Now, notice the end of the verse. It says, but deliver us from evil. There's a debate among Bible scholars as to whether or not the end of the verse is to be understood as referring to general moral evil or specifically to the evil one, Satan. Anybody have a version that says the evil one? Yeah. Uh, many modern translations, the NIV, the New King James, the Christian Standard Bible, have chosen the translation the evil one. Uh, the Greek can mean either evil or the evil one. Uh, perhaps the strongest argument that it is simply evil is that neither Hebrew nor Aramaic uh, uses the term the evil one to designate, to denote Satan. And when Jesus spoke these words, he certainly would have been speaking Aramaic. Uh, but Satan is certainly the one who does work in us to entice us to be tempted by sin. So it's entirely possible that the evil one would be appropriate here. Uh, regardless of which it is, the prayers consist in either way. Uh, we're asking God to deliver us from moral evil, and the father of moral evil is the evil one, Satan himself. So Satan and the flesh enter our trials, trials that God brings to perfect us, that he brings to help us strengthen ourselves, to strengthen others, and he brings to, that, that God brings these to us to teach us to trust him, to drive us to the word, to drive us to our knees. And then into those trials comes Satan with his temptations. And depending on how you respond, the tale will be told. So this petition is a safeguard against presumption. It's a safeguard against false senses of security. Because if you think you stand... You need to take heed that you, lest you fall. Uh, you think you've arrived spiritually, but you haven't. It, it's a prayer for God to defend us when he tests us so Satan and the flesh do not turn his test into temptation, which becomes irresistible and draws us into lust and lust into sin. Now, how do we deal with all that in the middle of a trial? Uh, when we begin to feel temptation coming, you know, when we're right in the middle of that trial and all of a sudden temptation comes, someone close to us has died or we've lost a job or we're angry at our wife or our kids, we're upset with the church, whatever it is, we're in a trial, financial, emotional, psychological, social, or spiritual. We're in this trial and we're saying, Lord, this is a real growing time. But then Satan begins to hit us. And he wants to make us bitter and angry. So how do we deal with it? Well, James 4, 7 gives us a very simple word. <coughs> it says, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, how do you do that? That means if I'm going to submit to God, I'm going to submit to his lordship and authority over my life so that I'm going to live in submission to biblical principles. How has God self-disclosed himself? How has he revealed his will? How has God revealed what he wants us to do? 
the word in the word and so as we enter into a uh, into a situation of a trial what we do is we begin to order our responses to that trial according to the principles of the word of god that's how we submit to god and as we order our life according to the principles of the word of god we find that in that same way we resist the devil and he flees from us submitting to god is not some obscure mysterious thing it's not some kind of strange emotional trauma submitting to god is ordering my life in response in accordance with the biblical revelation of God's will. And so in the midst of the trial, I say, Lord, I need your strength. I need it infused in me. I submit to the truths of your word. And my responses and attitudes and actions are all in submission to your word. So submitting to God is to submit to his word. It's his word that prunes off the sucker branches in John 15. It's his word that's hidden in our hearts so that we may not sin. It's his word that is the sword that defends us against the attack, Ephesians 6. And so that's what he's saying. How are we going to be delivered in the midst of a trial? By submitting to God. And as we submit to the truths of his word, and we take up the sword of the word of God, we begin to put it to use in our lives, and then in that manner, we resist the devil, and he flees. And that trial stays a trial, and never becomes an irresistible temptation. So in summary, what's this petition saying? When we pray this petition, we're facing the fact that we live in a cursed world where we're being battered by evil around us. We're confessing our inadequacy to deal with that evil. And we're admitting the fact that we're impotent and we need the protection of a loving father as we submit to his word. So we cry out as Jesus did when he was facing the cross, Father, Spare me the trial, but if the trial fits your wisdom and your way and your will and your plan, then protect me through the trial. We can't do it on our own. It has to be a divine resource. 1 Corinthians 10.13 is our encouragement, isn't it? What does it say? 1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. In other words... You're not going to experience anything that no one else has ever experienced. They're all common to everyone. And in the middle of all that, what? God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you'll be able to endure it. That's a verse you ought to all have committed to memory. He has promised that he will never desert you and never forsake you. Hebrews 13.5. Aren't you glad God didn't say, you know, you're going to have a lot of trials in life and I'm going to do my best to try to catch about 50% of them for you. <laughs> that would be pretty bad, wouldn't it? No, he says, I'm faithful. I'll be there for every one of them. God is faithful. Well, that sums up the prayer. Now, you'll notice that there's a doxology listed in brackets at the end of verse 13. It says, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, the reason that that phrase is in brackets, now, if you've got an ESV, it's probably not there. Uh, but the reason that phrase is in brackets is because it doesn't appear in any manuscript until the end of the second century A.D. 
Um, so it was not part of the original manuscript. It's a scribal edition. Uh, a well-meaning scribe loved the magnificence of this prayer so much that he added this doxology at the end, and then all the scribes after him assumed it was part of the manuscript, and they copied it too. Uh, so many of the modern translations, such as the NIV, the ESV, the NLT, and the CSB, don't even include it in their Bibles. Others like the New American Standard and the Legacy Standard Bible simply bracket it to indicate that it isn't in the early manuscripts, but it has a lengthy history of appearing in the later manuscripts. So although they're not in the original account, the words are perfectly fitting in this passage and express truths that are thoroughly scriptural. They form a beautiful doxology declaring the preeminence of God as seen in the greatness of his eternal kingdom, power, and glory. So then what have we learned in our studies? And it's been how many weeks in this prayer? Uh, that all we need is available to us, right? First, when we pray, God is to be given his rightful place as expressed in the first three petitions. And then our needs are brought to him in the last three petitions. And he will meet them in accordance with his wonderful eternal supply. And that brings us to the end <coughs> of this verse. Uh, I mean, this, this passage. Any, <laughs> any thoughts or comments or questions? Yes. In the Catholic portion, they what? They don't. They don't. They don't even say that. Okay. They just they end it. They end it at uh, well. The bracketed part is not repeated by them. Is there some particular reason why? I have no idea why the Catholics do that. <laughs> no idea at all, Mark. Okay. So why they don't cop? Why they don't repeat it? But it's not in the original. There's. Perhaps. Like, like I said, it does not appear in any manuscript until the end of the second century A.D. So there, there's other places in Scripture like that. So it, it's, it's odd to teach the book of Mark. You get to the end, and it's lengthy passage. It's bracketed. And if you're teaching from a New American Standard, all the people with ESVs are sitting there going, Huh? It's not in my Bible. So... Okay. All right. Well, let's move and start just in the last few minutes with the next passage, verses 16 to 18, which are very interesting. It says, Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your father who is in secret. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, as we said previously, in this particular portion of the Sermon on the Mount, <clears throat> Jesus is confronting the hypocritical religion of the Pharisees. And he picks out Three illustrations of that, giving, praying, and fasting. Back in verse 2, he said, When you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. 
In verse 5, he says, when you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites. And now as we come to verse 16, we see he says, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. So these are three illustrations of hypocritical religion that Jesus gives. We've already seen what he had to say about giving and praying. Now we come to the last one, fasting. Now I recognize that this is the area of spiritual discipline, which is perhaps the least understood by most evangelical Christians. Many Christians can tell you a great deal about what the Bible teaches about giving, what it says about praying, but they know almost nothing about fasting. In my studies on this subject, I found that many solid, sound commentaries have very little to say on these three verses that I just read. Uh, usually just a paragraph or two. In fact, I was shocked when I found that one of my commentaries, written by a man who, whose work I admire and have relied upon consistently in my studies in Matthew, my teaching through this book so far, he comes to this passage and he just skips over it <laughs> with absolutely nothing to say about these three verses. He ends with the model prayer in verse 15, and then he picks up again in verse 19. Nothing at all on verses 16 to 18. I don't believe we ought to do that. Just because a particular passage is seemingly detached from and unpracticed by most modern American evangelicals doesn't mean that we shouldn't study it, understand it, and seek to apply it in our spiritual walk. So that's what I want us to do. Uh, the Pharisees and the scribes were involved in many fasts for various purposes. It was a very common part of their religious system. But it needed to be corrected. <clears throat> However, before we can understand Jesus' correction, we must understand what fasting is all about. His statement simply assumes that his listeners understood all about fasting, and they did, because it was such an integral part of their religious practice. But fasting in the church today is a little understood factor of religious or spiritual experience. Now, I'm very much aware of the fact that we all like food. <laughs> I certainly do, as evidenced by simply looking at me. Uh, but I'm not any different than anyone else. God has provided such a wide variety of foods and different capacities to enjoy all those various foods that it's clear that God wanted us to have the fullness of enjoying all there is to enjoy in eating. But at the same time, it's possible to eat too much. And it's possible to eat foods that cause us to have physical problems. Uh, so there is an entire industry built around changing your eating habits to help you lose or maintain your weight. Uh, it is the diet industry. And a simple check of Wikipedia will reveal that there are dozens and dozens of different various types of diets, uh, all which claim to do something to help you lose or maintain weight. And many of them involve fasting of some type. There are diets which eliminate certain foods, such as carbohydrates or anything with sugar in it. 
There are other diets that involve periodic fasting, uh, skipping one or two meals a day, or, or drink, only drinking a protein shake for a few days before resuming meals. So fasting is often used in our culture as a means of losing weight. In fact, there are sad cases in which young women, at least most of the time it's young girls or women, become so consumed with their body and weight that they develop an eating disorder such as anorexia or bulimia and either stop eating most food or they binge and purge on food all for the purpose of losing weight. But the Bible never ever deals with fasting on a physical level. Uh, fasting in order to lose weight is not the issue. I'm not denying that there is some virtue to fasting to lose weight. Uh, it certainly is a means of combating the sin of gluttony. Uh, but it's still not the biblical definition of fasting. If you're gluttonous and you just gorged yourself to the point that it becomes sinful, then withholding food may be in some sense virtuous, but that's not a biblical fast. Uh, did you know that there are even people who fast in anticipation of becoming gluttonous? Uh, have you ever done that? I mean, it might be a couple of days before a special holiday, such as Thanksgiving, so they fast in order to be ready to really put on the feed bag on, on the holiday. Or they're going on a cruise in which you can gorge yourself on food at 24 hours a day, uh, and so they fast in preparation for that experience. Um, doing that is not a spiritual fast. Uh, preparation for gluttony is the same as gluttony. <laughs> so so if, if you're on some kind of fast for physical reasons, don't think you have the right to feel spiritual because you don't. Uh, it has no spiritual value at all. Fasting in and of itself is unknown in Scripture as an end in itself. Uh, all the benefits of fasting in Scripture are indirect, not direct. Legitimate fasting always had a spiritual purpose and is never practiced as having some virtue in and of itself. You don't just say, well, I'm going to fast, therefore I will be spiritual. <laughs> You're no more spiritual because you don't eat than because you, if you are when you do eat. Uh, Romans 14, 17 says the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. That's not the issue. That's not the substance of spirituality. Speaking about fasting, John Calvin had this to say. Many, for want of knowing its usefulness, undervalue its necessity. And some reject it altogether as superfluous. While other, on the other hand, where the proper use of fasting is not well understood, it easily degenerates into superstition. In other words, many people are either indifferent about it or they're superstitious about it. And so if we can correct those two perspectives, hopefully you will gain a better understanding of the proper use of fasting in the Christian life. Uh, don't be superstitious about fasting. It isn't going to get you any kind of super spirituality. In and of itself, it doesn't isolate itself to be a spiritual value, a virtue. It is always connected to something else. And we'll see that as we go through this study. 
So we're not interested in any kind of physical kind of fast to get a better looking body or to get yourself ready for a gluttonous activity tomorrow. Uh, we are not interested in a fast just for the sake of saying you fasted. Uh, that isn't the issue. There must be a spiritual context for a fast to be biblical. And that is essential. And that is basically outlined in the only fast ever commanded in all of the Bible. There's only one time that God ever commanded a fast. Anybody know what it was? Bingo. You got it. The only compulsory fast in Scripture was a general, public, national fast. Leviticus 16, God said, <laughs> on the Day of Atonement, when the sacrifices of the nation are given for the sins of the people for the previous year, on that day, the Jews were required to fast from sunrise to sunset. It's the only fast ever given by God as compulsory in the entire Bible. But it was a fast connected with a deep, mournful spirit in confessing sin. And that ought to give you a hint of what fasting is all about. It is never isolated from something else. It is inextricably connected to a great sense of spiritual anxiety. In that case, it was a time of confession of sin and seeking forgiveness at the hand of God. But, and even the little children on the Day of Atonement couldn't eat. Can you imagine what it was like to be a parent of a child that you couldn't let eat? That's hard. But they had to learn it when they were young so they would maintain it when they became older. Uh, now beyond that, the Bible never commands a fast. The New Testament never commands us to fast. The Bible commands us over and over again to give and to pray, but it doesn't command us to fast. That's, that it just is not a biblical command, and yet it fits right in with the other two things in this section. Fasting then it was a personal, non-compulsatory, spontaneous, voluntary act. There's no structure to fasting delineated in Scripture. And that brings me to a perfect spot to stop in our notes, in our time, plus it's time to stop. Besides that, any comments or questions so far on this subject of fasting? Yes? So regarding fasting, if one wanted to fast, would it have to be in the context of being mournful over sin? Or could somebody say, Lord, I would like to fast? For 24 hours, just because I want to be in communion with you more, closer to you, all for the new time. I'm going to answer that question next week. I'm going to be here next week. I'm going to be here all the way until February the 6th. And then the February 13th, 20th, and 26th, 27th. There will be Frank teaching. And I'll be, I'll be here on the 27th, but I'm not going to teach. I will have just gotten back from a period of gluttony on a cruise. Yeah, you can fast for me while I'm on the cruise. So, yeah. Any other questions? All right. 
Let's close with prayer.